Uh, so we're on Philippians chapter 3, and now we, we come to this moment that I don't know that uh, we always feel the weight of it, but it is, a, it is a huge privilege that God would address us this morning through His Word. And so as I read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, we just, as always, ask you to listen carefully. This is God's Word, and then I'll pray for us. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, it is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things." And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let's go once again before the throne. Father, we do come before you now, and it is a great privilege that you would reveal yourself to us by your Spirit, through your Word, for the glory of your Son this morning. And I do pray that that would be the case. I pray that we would see and savor Jesus together, and that we would be changed just as Moses was changed when he saw your face. Lord, so we pray now that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace and minds to comprehend and my lips to please you now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we start as a church plant, one question that often goes through my mind, which might sound like a strange question because as you think of church planting, you think of how do you, how do you how do you birth a church? But the question that I focus on maybe too much is, how does a church die? How does a church die? And uh, if you're into sociology or uh, just statistics, you'll see that at least in the West, Europe and America, the, the, down, the trend is downward, that churches are closing their doors more than they're opening their doors. And so many churches are dying. And the, the question is, how does that happen? And in fact, uh, several months ago, before we ever met publicly, kind of the core team got together and we asked this question, how, how will Redemption Parker die if, and then let's just do a pre-mortem? So sometimes you do a post-mortem, you figure out how you died, but how are we going to die? And uh, let's, let's take that into consideration. 
Well, again, this is a, a trend that is, is true in uh, not only in America, but we, we had the opportunity to live in the most atheist country in the world, in the Czech Republic, and, and minister there. And, and while there is still the church there, uh, by and large, it's a post-Christian nation, a post-Christian continent. And that's not because there aren't buildings we call churches. There, there are beautiful buildings that, that are called churches, that are museums, uh, and yet the church, as the Bible defines the church, is is on its last leg there. Well, we're hoping to change that. We're hoping that it's going to come back again. But how does a church die? Well, it only takes a generation. Uh, one scholar at Trinity Evangelical Seminary, uh, he, uh, he had said this about it. He said in his tradition, he said uh, he came from the Mennonites. He said, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and p- political entailments. So they believed the gospel, and they believed that the gospel had implications for the world. He said the next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments. Like, yeah, 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 gospel, but let's get focused on the work outside the walls. And then he said the following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything. D.A. Carson, who was a colleague of this professor, said this, what is it in the Christian faith that excites you? Today, there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another, abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination, for or against, economic justice, a certain style of worship, the defense of a particular Bible version, and much, much more. Not for a moment am I suggesting that we should not think about such matters or throw our weight behind some of them, but when such matters devour most of our time and passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? Now, we've said we want to be a gospel-clear, gospel-centered people. Twenty years ago, a book was written uh, entitled, Why the Church Must Change or Die. It was written by a, kind of a, a theologically liberal professor, and, and uh, the mainline denominations took it up, and, and basically the thesis of the book was, hey, we're losing our influence, we're losing our people, here's what we need to do, we need to change, we need to not, not worry so much about what this says as it really being from the Word of God, but let's, let's be relevant to the culture, let's engage the culture where they're and, and just meet them there. That's how our churches are going to survive. And many uh, of uh, historic uh, colleges and, and seminaries uh, from history past, the, the professor at uh, Harvard of Divinity there said, this is the greatest thing, let's go on with this. And, and so how's that working out for you is what I would say. In fact, a study just came out. It was in the Washington Post last January about the decline of the church. But they said, what was interesting was all these churches that said, yes, let's, let's change, let's become relevant, let's do those things, uh, they continued even at a faster pace to lose people. And so it didn't work. They said, well, there is one segment in the, the church world that is actually advancing and growing it's a segment that still takes this as the Word of God and still believes that gospel saves sinners and preaches the gospel. That is actually advancing in, in our nation and in the West and in Europe as well. But we, 
We don't want to be that just because we want to have church growth. We want to be that because we believe God is who He says He is, that this is God's Word, and that the gospel matters. One of my friends once said to me, Mark, you know, you only preach the same sermon every week, right? (laughs) You just come at it from different angles. And I'm like, that's right. Thank you for that compliment. And he meant it as a compliment. That is not to say that the gospel doesn't have implications everywhere. It does. We will talk about marriage and and jobs and and, and missions and abortion and all these other things, but they will flow out of our understanding of the gospel that changes everything. So we want to be a gospel clear and a gospel central people. And this is what Paul is doing with the Philippians. It's a church that he started, that he loves. We know uh, already that he's in prison in Rome. He's suffered for the faith, and he's writing this this letter to the Philippians, and now he comes to the part where he says, finally, my brothers, and actually should be uh, not said finally because he's only halfway through his letter, uh, but it, it should say, now then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he says this, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. What are the same things? Well, we just read the passage. We know what he's going to write. He's going to remind them of the centrality of the gospel, the core of the gospel. And he says, you know what? It's no problem for me. You've heard me preach it, and you've read my other letters, and I'm going to write it again. It's no problem for me. It's no problem for us, for myself and for Brad and the the gospel community leaders to to every week say, here's what the gospel is. Here's what the gospel is. Let's remember the gospel. It's no trouble for us because it is a safeguard for you. It it is like uh, the safety rail on the side of a mountain highway. It, It keeps us on track. And so that's what Paul is going to do with the Philippians once again. He first starts with a warning in chapter, in verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Who in the world, what in the world are you talking about, Paul? The dogs, the evildoers. Now, some of you are dog people and you're offended right now, but just understand, again, cultural context. In the first century, dogs were not nice little puppies uh, that you named and uh, were seen as good things. Dogs were, were dangerous. Dogs were nasty. Dogs brought disease. Uh, dogs, like if you were on the road at night, that was one of your biggest dangers, that a pack of dogs would come and devour you. And so to call someone a dog in the first century, that was like, that's top wrong kind of stuff. That, 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 that was bad. The Jews would often call the Gentiles dogs. We see this in Mark chapter 7. Gentiles were referred to as dogs, the dirty, the unclean, the outcast. And so Paul says, watch out for the dogs. So who's he talking about? He says, watch out for the evildoers. Man, these guys sound pretty bad. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. What in the world? Well, we we see what he's talking about. He says, for we are the circumcision. Well, what Paul is talking about is really the first heresy that, that just days after the gospel would spread to a church would find its way creeping itself into the church. It, it was known as a group of, called the Judaizers. The, these were people that were, were Jewish in ethnicity and background, and they, in some sense, said, yeah, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We also believe that you need to do everything the law says. Still, yeah, Jesus saves us, but still do everything in the law that includes their favorite subject, circumcision. I don't know why they were obsessed with it, but they were. And, and so they would come in after Paul would, would leave or, 
Apollos or Timothy would plant a church and they would say, hey, Gentiles, we're so glad that you've come to worship the one true God of the universe. Now all you need to do is, well, we need to check. Everyone drop their pants, at least for the guys, and we need to see if you're really going to be accepted by God. And so uh, this is certainly in the, in the Old Testament that the people were set apart by circumcision, and they said, so it's in the Bible, so you need to do that. But, but this was a distortion of the gospel. This was saying, Jesus plus something, and in this case, circumcision, or Jesus plus Sabbath, a Saturday, or Jesus plus eating only certain things, and then you would be accepted by God. But, but Paul says, no, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's all Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus is the, the author, the perfecter, the source of our faith. And when you mess with the gospel, uh, Paul takes the gloves off and he pulls no punches and he says, watch out, they're the dogs, they're the evildoers, they're the mutilators of the flesh. But that same tendency is in the church today. We, we, it's always eager, it's always easier to lean towards legalism. It's always easier to come up with a list of rules, to come up with a list to see who's in and who's out. And so uh, our temptation for our hearts ourselves and for the church is to be legalistic because that way we can say, are we more spiritual than the person on our left or right? Do we have more favor with God? Does God look at us and judge on a curve? And so we love that because we love to self, self-salvation. We, we love to self-promote. We love legalism because that means we can do something. And this would find its root in the hearts of these early churches. And Paul says, no, that is not the gospel. And he reminds them of the truth. He says, we are the circumcision. All that means we have, in Galatians, he tells about it. He says, our hearts have been set apart by God. Our hearts have been circumcised. We are the ones that are set apart holy to God. And he says, here's the marks of, if you truly know God, here's three marks of what it looks like. He says, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. That word worship can also mean served by the Spirit of God. It means to be spirit-led, spirit-empowered. This should remind you of uh, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, a time is coming and has already come that the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul says, our motivation, our power source for living life, all of life, is from the Spirit of God, not from ourselves. Not, not some inner strength that we find in ourselves, but through God's Spirit. And so we worship by the Spirit of God, number one. Number two, uh, and glory in Christ Jesus, or the word might be boast in Christ Jesus. Our hope, our focus is what Jesus Christ did, His sufficiency, His beauty, His glory, His life, His death, and His resurrection. That's what we boast in. That's what we hope for. And then he says the third mark, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Again, we are all tempted. We're, we're Americans. We're, we're in Parker, Colorado. If anything we're tempted to do is to put confidence in the flesh, put confidence in our education, our, our bank accounts, put confidence in our moral behavior. I mean, we see the news. We're better than all those people after all, right? We see the political party that we don't like. We're better than them. We have a tendency to put confidence in the flesh, but the people with the Spirit of God, rescued by God, put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul just pulls out his spiritual resume, which looks pretty good. Now, now Paul's resume must have so frustrated these Judaizers. 
These people that said, man, yes, it's Jesus plus the law. Paul, Paul says, no, let me tell you about that. You're boasting about following the law. Let me show you about following the law. He says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I love that. It's like you don't, you don't step up to my level. It's just, you're not there yet. And he says, check this resume out. Circumcised on the eighth day. I, I, I could put confidence in ritual. Sometimes in ministry, um, I'll be talking to someone, and the conversation will come up, and I'll say, are you a, are you a follower of Jesus? And the answer will be, well, my parents baptized me when I was born. I'm like, okay, well, that's okay. That's not the same thing that I was asking here, but um, there's confidence in ritual. Paul says, if there was confidence in ritual, my parents did it the right way. I didn't have a choice, but they did it the right way according to the law on the eighth day. He says, but uh, of the people of Israel, there's some people put confidence in their ethnicity. Well, um, of course I'm this particular religious group because I'm from this country. Duh. And uh, we saw that all over Europe, and, and that, that became a stumbling block as well. Uh, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, he's putting confidence in his rank. See, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of them uh, were, were judged by God, by the, and God sent the Assyrians and scattered them. Uh, Judah and Benjamin kind of stayed somewhat faithful. And so to be a, a Jew of any standing, you had to be from either Judah or Benjamin. And Paul says, hey, I'm from one of the top two. So I'm from Benjamin. My rank as a, a, a Jewish person. Uh, person is, is pretty high. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, or a Jew of Jews. Uh, he says elsewhere in his letters, he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He, he studied them, and he said, I'm going to do everything that, is, that a good Jewish boy does. I'm going to make sure I do it better than everyone else. He says, uh, as to the law of Pharisee. Again, we see that through the filter of, of the Gospels, and we're like, Pharisees, those are the bad dudes. But, but in the first century, the Pharisees, man, those had the highest degree of respect. These guys, they took God seriously. They're not like the rest of us. They, 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 they not only followed the law, they had made up a whole bunch of other laws to keep them from breaking, getting close to the law. I mean, it sounds really good. And so he's like, I was a Pharisee as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Before he met Christ, he's like, hey, anything that I saw come up against God, I would, I would not only go stamp it out, I would, I would go on jihad against that thing. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, now, we know Paul doesn't know that he was perfect, but he said, under the law, as far as the Jews were concerned, they would say, that person's blameless, that person's blameless. Paul was, was a Jew of Jews. He was a student of Gamaliel, the, the Jewish Aristotle of the time. He was an up-and-comer. He probably would have been high priest. And so when Paul says to the, to the people that say, you've got to be really Jewish, and he says, no, here was my resume. I had all of it. But check out what he says. That was all in my pro column for my spiritual life. 
And then verse 7, but whatever gain I had, whatever was in the pro call, my count as loss. When he, in, when he encountered Christ, everything flipped. Everything in the pro column moved to the lost column. And there was only one thing left in the pro column uh, that, that replaced it, and it is Jesus. Look what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior, or my Lord. That you might want to underline that. You might want to highlight that. Paul isn't saying Jesus is, is better than the law. He's not saying Jesus is marginally better than, than the other worldview and religious systems out there. He says it's surpassing worth. When you put Jesus on the scale, the scale blows up. You know, when I was in seminary, one of the, the movements in the church to try to be relevant was, was this, uh, now it's giving my mind, the emergent movement. And I had some friends that were pastors at one of these churches downtown. It's no longer around, but it grew very big very quickly. And, and I remember talking to the guy and I said, now, do you guys believe that Jesus is, is really the only way? And he said, Mark, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. I would say, uh, Mark, that Jesus isn't the only way. He's just the best way. I'm like, that sounds even more arrogant. Like, you've got Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and all these guys, and all of them are good, but, but Jesus is just a marginally a little bit better. It's not only offensive to all of them, but it's offensive to Jesus. Jesus, th these guys are created, lived, and died. Jesus, the creator of the universe, all things were made by him, for him, and for his glory. He's not a little bit better. He is surpassingly, exceedingly, no comparison, better. And Paul says, so when you have Jesus in this column, it doesn't matter what you've done your whole life. It doesn't matter all your spiritual striving, your prayers, your giving, your going, whatever. That's all. All lost compared to what's going on in this column, to knowing Jesus, the surpassing worth. I want you to feel the weight of that. And that word knowing we'll come back to in a moment. But Paul goes on, he says, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he's not speaking metaphorically. When he got knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, and he got saved by Jesus. Everything else in Paul's life became worse, not better. He lost his friends. He lost his family. He lost his prestige. He lost his wealth. All the things that we, my heart so quickly wants to put uh, a faith in and trust in, they were stripped away from him. And he says, but... I've lost all things for Jesus, but you know what? It's a good trade. It's, it's the best trade I've ever made in my whole life. This is amazing. I've got Jesus. He's in prison, chained to other Roman soldiers, and he's like, it doesn't matter. I've got forever with Jesus. It's all good. He says, and I count them as rubbish. So, so all those good things that I piled up before knowing Jesus, I count them as rubbish. Now, that's a very polite translation. <laughs> I mean, we don't even, that's like British, like we're Americans, that doesn't even mean anything to us. Like rubbish, I think that means trash, right? Okay, so we don't say that. Maybe if you have a King James Version, it gets a little bit closer to it, I count it as dumb, okay? So, so they're, they're, the, the translators are being kind to us. In our family, uh, 
All, my kids went to public school in the Czech Republic, and so they learned all of the American curse words like all day long. Uh, because when you curse in someone else's language, you don't feel the weight of that. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to learn another language, but so they just heard everything. And so I, just, I try to explain to them, you know, there's a scale when it comes to curse words. There's, there's ones and there's tens and there's everything in between. And so we'll say, sometimes I'll say, hey, give me a, a one or a two. And they'll say, uh, dang or darn, or, and they'll, 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 ramp it up a little bit. And, and on the way to driving to the Russo's house, they get so embarrassed because I'm like, hey, we got to turn off a mineral onto Jackass Hill Road. And they're like, dad, I'm like, it's on the sign. That's like a two or a three. It's okay. And then I'll say, well, tell me a six. No, dad, we're not going to tell you a six. And I say, well, you understand. Okay, you know all the words, and they'll, they'll say the first letter of the word. I'm like, okay, just so you know the scale. You, you know, in the right context, you might be able to say a two or three for me, but I probably should keep it toned down from there. But uh, don't want to be legalistic. I'm just saying. Uh, you understand the scale. So the translators translated this as a one, but put it, whatever your six or seven or eight is, that's what Paul's saying. He says, whatever, whatever spiritual gain, whatever, whatever my prayers got for me, whatever my religious fervor and devotion got for me, I consider it like a, a pile of dog manure. What? That's not right. It's dog crap. Okay, so I'm sorry. I went to three or four there. Sorry. But that's what Paul is saying. That you got to feel that. He's like, it's, it's, it's dung. It's it's nothing. Like, you, you can have Jesus or this pile over here, this steaming pile. And he's like, no, I consider it rubbish. Um, and so he says, uh, in order, I, I consider that nothing, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. To be found in Him is to be covered by Him. It is to, to be in Christ so that, so that when, when God comes and He comes to judge the world and He looks around and He says, where, where is Mark? Oh, there you are, Mark. You're in Christ. You're all good. All I see is the righteousness of Christ. All I see is the goodness of Christ, the, the perfect, perfection, perfect life of Christ. So that's good you're in Christ. Where is everyone else? Paul says, I want to be found in Christ. And then, uh, as one scholar put it when I was reading this week, he says, verse 9 is the quintessential Pauline theology. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. We see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. But we see it here in, in Philippians chapter 9. It's to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Again, you should be reminded of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Righteousness. Right standing in God. Justification. Some said it, justification means justified, never sinned. But that's only half the story. Justified, never sin. It's, it's also justified, always obeyed in perfect obedience. We get that from Christ. We see this 2 Corinthians 5.21. I say it all the time. And it is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Uh, he became sin who knew no sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul's whole hope is placed in that. That's justification. He says, verse 10, that I may know him. 
in the power of his resurrection and may share in the suffering, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, Paul, that, that's another sermon for another time, but I want you to see that the main thrust of this passage, as Paul once again lays out just gospel truth, is that the, the, the greatest thing you and I can give our lives to is knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. He says it twice. He says it in verse uh, 8, uh, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He says it again in verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. The word there is gnosko or epigonosko. It, it means not just head knowledge, not just knowing some, some ideas about Jesus. It means to know by experience. To know by experience. So, this is really the crux of the Christian life. This is why we gather. And so I want to give just two illustrations to help us know Jesus, understanding knowing Jesus. The first one is, um, did you know that I know Liam Neeson? Liam Neeson, uh, he's an actor. Uh, I was, he's, he's been in lots of, lots of movies, like dozens and dozens and dozens of movies, but when I was a student in, in 1997, I, I spent a semester in the Czech Republic in Prague, and while we were there, we heard rumor that they were filming Les Miserables there because part of the city looks like 18th century uh, uh, France. And so uh, Liam was playing Jean Valjean, and Claire Danes was there, and some other actors. And so some of my roommates, they said, hey, let's go down and, and meet him because every night after they shoot, uh, they, they go to, Liam, being an Irishman, goes to the one Irish pub in Prague, and so let's go down there. And so we went there and got in there, and sure enough, uh, Liam Neeson walks in with some of the other actors and actresses, and, and he's very, very friendly. And he goes around, and his, people are going up to him, and he's going around introducing himself, and he comes around and introduces himself, and, and he buys everyone a round of Guinness. And so uh, it, it was a good deal. I met Liam Neeson. Not only that, I, I know lots of other things about Liam. I know that he was born in 1952, June 7th of 1952. I know that he got into acting because when he was 11 years old, his English teacher said, you can have the lead role in this play. And the reason he took it was because the, the, his, his counter was the girl he liked. And so he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll play that role. So as an 11-year-old, he was, uh, that's how he got into it. I know what his first movie was, 1977 in Ireland. It was a Christian film. He played two parts is the film Pilgrim's Progress. He played the part of evangelist and of Jesus Christ. I know that he was in many other movies. I know that in 1993, he, he met his future wife, Natasha Richardson, on the set. And in 1994, they got married. I know that they had two sons. And uh, after um, uh, as they were growing up, uh, tragically in 2009, uh, Natasha died from head injury skiing in Montreal, Canada. I know that Liam's been in Star Trek and all sorts of other movies, and uh, I know what you're thinking now. <laughs> you're thinking, you don't know Liam Neeson. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I had a personal encounter with him, a brief one, and I know a bunch of facts about him. I know Liam Neeson. You're like, no, you don't know Liam Neeson. <laughs> like, well, isn't that what so many people that call themselves Christians do? You have a brief personal encounter with Jesus, and then you know a bunch of facts about Jesus. And I would say to you, you don't know Jesus. 
at least not in the way you should or the way you could. So that's not the type of knowing that I want us to have at Redemption Parker. The other type of knowing is one of experience. So I have a friend. He is a, a foodie. <laughs> he's, he would say he's into the culinary arts. He, he likes to watch these, these I mean, he, he likes to watch like uh, Good Eats and the Food Network, and, and he just watches those. And he's, and he's also a talker. You ever notice whatever you're passionate about, you also talk to people about? So, so our problem with evangelism isn't that we, that we should, you know, feel guilty and we should go. That, that if you get passionate about Jesus, no one's going to stop you from talking about Jesus. I, I guarantee that. So that's what I want to stir in us. But anyway, he's passionate about food and he's a talker. So he would always just come over to my house and he'd be like, like check this out. I made homemade marshmallows. I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, but okay. Uh, so we had homemade marshmallows. And then he'd come over and he'd, he would bring this dish or that dish. Well, one day he comes to my house and he's says, hey, I got an ice cream maker. I'm like, well, that's cool. But, you know, honestly, I'm not really into homemade ice cream. It's kind of, I've seen the rock salt and it's kind of milky and watery. I, I don't, I'm not into that. He's like, no, 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 Mark, you don't understand. This is, this is better than premium ice cream, surpassingly better. I'm like, no, what are you talking about? Uh, he's like, no, it's better than Ben and Jerry's. It's better than Cold Stone. It's better than all. I'm like, yeah, whatever. He's like, well, let me tell you how I make it. Okay, go ahead. And I'm like doing some work around the house. And he's following me around, telling me how he's making ice cream. And he's like, well, I made French vanilla. And so, so what you do there, I, got, I ordered on Amazon.com uh, French vanilla bean pods. And you cut those open, you put them in the sugar, and you let that sit for two weeks. And now you got French vanilla sugar. And, and that's what you can do. But, but this week, I'm making chocolate, triple chocolate ice cream. But I I had to order this special ice cream from Germany because it's alkalized. I'm like, alkalized? What is it, a battery? He's like, no, no. That helps mix the chocolate with the milk so that it's a smoother taste on your palate. I'm like, okay, well, then what do you do? And he's like, okay, so actually we don't make, we don't make ice cream. It's technically custard because it has egg yolks in it. So you got to separate the whites from the yolks. And he shows me with an egg. Like, you go back and forth and you put those in there. It takes eight egg yolks. I'm like, okay. And then what? He's like, well, you put that in your KitchenAid, and you stir it for like five minutes because the eggs have to emulsify. I'm like, emulsify? I don't even know what that means. He's like, it just, it, 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 it helps with the texture, Mark. I'm like, okay. Well, then you put your French vanilla sugar in there, and you put your German chocolate that's alkalized in there, but meanwhile, you're, you're heating up um, half and half, four cups at half and half, and you got to get it right to 168 degrees. I'm like, 168 degrees? Why? He's like, because if you boil it, it goes too far. That ruins the custard, and so you can't do that. I'm like, well, how do you do that? Well, he literally busts out this tool. It's a little gun. It's a laser gun. And he, and he says, you, you point it at the top and you can tell exactly what it is. It's 71 degrees on the floor right now. Let's see how your skin is. You're, you're up to 85 degrees. That's pretty good. So he's got this gun where he's shooting the half and half. And he's like, okay, really slow. Stir it, stir it, stir it. And I'm like, okay, so then, then what do you do? And he's like, but then you got to mix that in there with the tempered eggs and the sugar and the chocolate. But you don't just pour it all in there because that'll cook the eggs. You've, you've got you've to temper the eggs. Sorry, that, I threw that word out too soon. You've got to temper the eggs because you slowly pour the hot liquid in there and it gets in. And I'm like, okay, now are we good to go? Can we make the, No. He's like, now you've got to put that all back on the stove, get it up to 168 degrees again while you're stirring it at a low level with the laser gun, and then uh, you set it aside. I'm like, okay. 
and you let that cool for about 25 minutes because um, it's hot, and now you've got to put two tablespoons of vanilla in it, and vanilla has alcohol in it, and it'll just evaporate, and it'll lose the flavor. Uh, so I'm like, this is crazy, emulsify, alkalize, temper. I'm learning a new language here uh, with all this, and I'm like, now is it ready? He's like, no. Then you put some salt, a pinch of salt in it. You put it in the refrigerator overnight. It's got to cool. I'm like, okay. So the next morning, you wake up. He's like, now you're ready to slow churn it with the Cuisinart ice cream machine. And I'm like, okay, this is crazy. So you put it in there. How long do you do that? So for, for 30, 25, 30 minutes. And it folds micro air bubbles into it and fluffs it up. And that gives you the texture and flavor. It actually changes the flavor of the ice cream. I'm like, okay. Well, now is it ready to eat? He's like, no, no. Then you got to put it in the fridge and, and freeze it for another 12 hours so it's hard ice cream. I'm like, this is great. I, I don't, I don't want to hear any more about the ice cream. Just let me know when it's done. And so a couple weeks go by because he's got to make the, the sugar and all that stuff. And I get a text. The ice cream's ready. I'm like, mm, cool. <laughs> Do you want some? Sure. And in fact, I brought some. So um, he, he finally, after all this, at this point, now I know a lot about the ice cream. And I, I know about the alkalis. I've learned about custard and how that has eggs in it. And I've, I've learned a whole bunch of things about this ice cream. But it wasn't until he, he brought the ice cream to my house, put it in my hands, and gave me a spoon. And then now, now I know the ice cream. <laughs> I know the ice cream. That's a whole different experience. I know a lot about the ice cream, but now I know. And you know what? I've got to get some more here, just a second. You know what I did when I, when I tasted and saw that the ice cream was good? I bought my own ice cream machine. <laughs> and I made this ice cream, and uh, after the service, I brought some for you. My, not only that, and this speaks to discipleship, my daughter made it with me. And they've become ice cream snobs themselves. <laughs> One time someone gave us some like cheap Napoleon, what is that called? That Neapolitan, thank you, ice cream. And, and, and the kids scrunched up their face. And just a second, I'm going to get some more. And um, I'll come back to that. And they're like, Dad, it doesn't taste right. It's icy. I'm like, well, that's because they didn't temper the eggs. They didn't, <laughs> oh, you got you to do that. And, uh, Oh, I don't know where I'm going with that. I think of Psalm 34 tells us that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, now here's the thing. One of the things that, that, that we want to be, we want to be a theologically robust people of God. We want to study. We're going to learn new words along the way. But all of that is not to, to put confidence in the flesh, to, to say, look how good we are at our theology and doctrine. All theology, the whole purpose of theology is to know and taste and see that the Lord is good. And so now I know a bunch of things about ice cream, but I know how to make the ice cream. And that's the whole point of what Paul's getting at here. And he says this, he says, make knowing Jesus, make tasting and seeing, make delighting in Jesus the pursuit of your life, and that's how you will survive as a church. This morning I was reading in Revelation to the seven churches, and there's a warning to each one of them. 
And the warning usually comes, they've, they've lost their love of Jesus. They've, they've allowed false doctrine to get in. They've gone after idolatry. They, they refuse to repent. They, these same things come up, um, but the person that tastes and sees that pursues Christ, and we don't have to worry about that. One of my prayers is that Jesus would shut down the doors of Redemption Parker if we ever get off the message of the gospel. Because there's, there's enough out there that can deal, deal with that. Here's the three things we do. We worship by the Spirit of God. We say, God, we can't do this in ourselves. We need your power and your presence to live your life through us. We glory in Christ Jesus. We make much of Jesus. That, that he would be the one that is on our minds and lips every time we leave here. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Let me close this in prayer. And that, like I said, after communion, we'll have some ice cream back in the park that, that we made. We have, we have chocolate ice cream, and we have uh, a mango vanilla ice cream. And I'm sorry if you can't have lactose. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> let me pray for us, and then uh, lead us to the communion table. God, thank you that uh, we, we, get to, we get to count anything that we once counted as gain, as loss, as rubbish, as whatever a level seven or eight word would be for us, uh, because we have Jesus. And that at the end of the day, if all we have is Jesus, may we be like the Apostle Paul, 30 years into knowing and following and, and worshiping you, he could say with all his heart, I want to know Jesus. Lord, you, you are deeper than the ocean, and we are just getting our ankles wet right now. So we want to be a people that goes deeper with you fuel our passions for you and, and give us your spirit to live your life through us and, and, and make Jesus the, the, the center of our affections and hope and help us, Lord, with no confidence in the flesh. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.